0: My name is Morgan Weiss, and I am just on the second podcast for the 146 ministry here at Sunnybrook, um, which focuses on adoptive orphan care and fostering. And today we're going to specifically kind of dive into what we call the foster world, which is just all things foster care, to get some more information and insight about what that might look like um, as you are considering um, a way that you can partner. We strongly believe that everybody can do something so um, we're gonna start just by going around the horn and, and getting everybody's name and what they do um, in this regard of in the in, in their involvement with the foster world and so we'll start with that my name is Morgan Weiss. like I said I do junior high and high school ministry here at Sunnybrook um, I am I've been a foster parent for eight years um, I had a, a little boy come live with me. Um, who was 11 and a half when I was 24, and he has since been adopted. He's 19. Um, a lot of you guys know him, Quan. And then I have two um, foster kids currently living in my home, and I do respite in between placements. So that's kind of
1: my role. Okay. Over here. Well, I'm Brian Larison with uh, the Lions Meadows of Hope. Um, we are a foster care agency. We contract with DHS to recruit, um, certify, and then. Uh, support foster parents, um, and we primarily focus on the Payne County area. Uh, Payne County, Lincoln County um, is our our primary focus. I've been, um, I'm a licensed professional counselor and I've been working in the foster care space since 2001. Um, From 2001 to 2015 was primarily residential care, group home care, so taking care of uh, teenage boys, um, in 2015, we transitioned into uh, traditional foster care. And th- kind of the big thing about Meadows of Hope is we have a campus that is dedicated to keeping large sibling groups together. So, in fact, just this Monday, we had a sibling group of four adopted out of foster care.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And he, he mentioned this. He works for Meadows of Hope, which partners with DHS, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And so essentially they do a lot of the same things in the sense of placing... Um, kids in in foster homes, but it's but it comes with an entire kind of wraparound service for the foster family. Mm-hmm. Um, they they help recruit and get CASA workers. They help um, make sure that needs are met in the foster home. Counseling services. It basically um, takes the pressure off of like a a DHS worker right. and onto this system. Yeah,
1: it's a public private partnership, so we can leverage our uh, private dollars with state dollars to do so much more. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it.
0: That's awesome. Awesome. All right, Dana.
2: All right. My name is Dana Davis. I'm with 111 Project. Um, we are a foster and adoptive advocacy ministry, and we um, our purpose is to help mobilize the church into the community and um, to help be a support and ensure that every child has a family. And we actually are an implementer here in Oklahoma for um, something called the Care Portal. And it's a platform so that DHS workers and other agency workers can actually put needs in of families and the churches in that area can see them and help respond. So we, we believe that um, helping provide support systems for anything from aging out all the way down to prevention and everything in between um, can really help make a difference in, in foster care. So we, we really want to help support churches to do that. I'm also a foster parent. I've been a foster parent for eight years. And then my husband and I lead the, um, lead the Care Portal team at our church at Destiny Christian Center in Dell City.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Okay,
2: Randy. Uh,
3: my name is Randy Blake, and I'm a CASA volunteer. Um, if you're not familiar with CASA, when children are taken out of the home for, like, neglect or abuse or a combination of, uh, you know, things like that, they're they're put into state's custody and then so they basically have to there's a transition period so when the the parents are either trying to do their services to get the children back um, Acasa comes alongside the kids and we basically um, uh, are their voice in court with counseling and education and uh i mean gosh anything anything that's for their best interest we we kind of observe everything that's going on, and we give a recommendation to the judge about what we think the best fit for them is. And so uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: Yes, and so what Randy does as a CASA volunteer is it's a volunteer. That's not your job, right? That's what correct. do you do for a living? Yeah, uh,
3: I work for the fire department. Yes, mm-hmm. so he
0: works for the fire department for the, for a living, but this is a volunteer position. And he when he's saying he is an advocate, a voice for the child, Whenever you enter into the foster care world, you learn pretty quickly there's a lot of voices. Mm -hmm. Um, So an attorney is is involved um, because there's a legal system that's trying to get the students home. So you have the whole legal system and the dynamic there. Um, And the attorney will speak whatever the child speaks to them. So if you have a five-year-old, even a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, they may want something that is still not in their best interest. And so what the CASA worker does is is the CASA worker comes alongside and works in a lot of ways. Sometimes as a mentor um, Mm -hmm. to the child, they spend a lot of time with the child. They help the child navigate life in foster care, life in a shelter. It could be a
3: very, it could be a very intimidating process for these kids when they're taken out of the home and they're putting in, they're put in a foster family or a shelter or, you know, that's, that's the two primary causes. But you had mentioned like, um, an attorney. The attorney pr- typically talks to the kid five minutes before they're actually going to go to right. court, and right. so they don't really have a lot to do with that. So that's what uh, Acasa. You know, we right. were, we basically we take everything that is this child is involved in, and we, you know, just kind of walk them through and help to f- help to give them guidance, and then also you know give our recommendation what we think is mm-hmm. best for them, considering all the the things that are go into a child's health and well being. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. They're kind of the third party. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like you have the foster care worker, um, you have the foster care parent, you have or organization, um, you have the counselor, the school, the um, biological parent, and all the different perspectives. And honestly, attachment and things that can weigh into wanting things. And the CASA worker comes alongside as an objective. Um, overview of all of these situations and is able to have a great actually weight and voice in the court system, especially on what they believe is best for the child as they can kind of view all of it, Mm -hmm. you know?
3: Because DHS does a good job, but I mean, if you've been involved with this fostering uh, situation at all, you know, they are very overworked and there's just not enough hours in a day for them to investigate all the different avenues of as far as like each child's well-being. I think a DHS uh, worker can typically have between 10 and 15 cases Mm -hmm. and you could have within those cases you could have four different kids on one specific case and so there's just not enough hours in a day for them to be able to to do that job to the level I think we would all agree would be you know at what the kids deserve. Mm -hmm. And so uh, CASA works alongside DHS but sometimes you know our goals don't line up. Sometimes we have different you know, views on what is best for the children. And so, you know, that's where the objective piece comes in. And and so uh, that I think it's a valuable, healthy kind of uh, relationship.
0: When you are a CASA parent or a a CASA parent, a CASA volunteer, um, how many kids do you usually have at one time?
3: Yeah, it it depends on on a family. I mean, so any family, if one kid is taken away from the the biological parents or the guardians, usually the rest of the, the, the siblings are taken as well. So it's usually not one. So it depends on the family size. My current case, I have two kids. Uh, There's cases with four, there's cases with one. But it's always just
0: one family at a time. It's
3: one family at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I do have some numbers for you, Morgan. Okay. So um, right now there's 50 volunteers in Payne County, CASA volunteers, and they're serving about a hundred kids. And so that there's also 25, uh, the judge or DHS has requested CASA on 25 cases that there's not volunteers to fill that need at Mm. this point. So Mm -hmm. that's currently, and that's just Payne County. There's CASA offices in Logan County and uh, Lincoln County and and everywhere. But those are, those are ones that
0: are close. Yeah. So it's definitely still a need. Yeah, definitely a need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, we kind of went around and kind of heard some of these um, ideas. I would like to ask some more while we're on stats. Of you, Dana, what are some more foster care stats you can give us in Oklahoma and then more specifically in Payne County?
2: Sure. Right now in Oklahoma, there's just under 8,000 kids in care. Um, There's about 232 that are 17, uh, about to age out, currently 81 in shelters and... um, there's about 2,000 traditional foster homes and about 2,000 kinship foster homes, which just means that they, they knew the children or the family before or at the time of needing placement. So, um, but in Payne County, kind of break that down just a little bit. Uh, in out-of-home care right now, there's 140 ki- 134 kids. Um, there are Is that nine? so out-of-home care and
0: foster care? In foster care, yeah. Okay.
2: And then right now there are also nine that are legally free for adoption. Um, about to age out, there are two. There are two 17-year-olds that are about to age out and be declared adults at 18 years old. Um, There are 53 in either shelter or therapeutic homes, and currently about 50% of the kids from this county are placed out of county because of the need for foster homes. So those are some of the kind of bigger ones, but it breaks it down a little bit smaller whenever you see it in your county. And one of our a big hope of ours is to empower the church to mobilize and to say yes, to either be a part in some way of volunteering to help provide for families in need, um, or even become those families that can take in children. So we kind of, uh, we mobilize the church to do those things. Mm-hmm. So,
0: and you know, um, in mobilizing the church, it's like everybody can't to be. And I want to make this very clear: to be a foster parent is really hard. Yes, it's really hard, and it's it's not it's not the blind side. It's no. not a movie. It's not. Um, it's difficult. It's, it's just like you would think about anything. I mean, you think marriage is one thing, and then you get into a marriage, and you're like, wow, this is like every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's every day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, I think sometimes you have this idea of what you think something's going to be, and then it's, it can be harder, and it can pull things out of you you didn't even know were in you. And um, so having a network of people around is super important, which is one of the reasons why a CASA can be so vital and why the 111 Project saying, hey, we need people to help even if that means that you're not a foster parent, we need you to use your giftings. Um, if you're financially um, stable and you have resources to give, we need that, you know, to provide some services for these kids. Um, if you are a very disciplined in your prayer life, we need that to pray specific prayers um, to God on behalf, to advocate on behalf of these children, Um we need people. And so I think that's really important. And I want to ask you, Brian, um, because you guys are a, basically a group that does partner with DHS, but at the same time, you provide more of those services. Kind of what were you seeing that, because this is a new thing before 2015, correct?
1: 2013. We got into the space in 2015. Okay. So
0: in 2013 is when it was not just solely DHS placing kids anymore that they were going to bring in outside agencies to help Mm -hmm. partner in an effort to make this go more smoothly and help further help surround these kids with care. So kind of speak to that and speak, what are things that you guys are able to provide through Meadows of Hope that you see, it seems like for you, that your parents most need, your foster parents most need and the foster children most need?
1: Yeah. Well, um, in 2008, the state of Oklahoma was sued by a civil rights organization because they were saying basically DHS was violating the civil rights of the children that they would come into care. Um, at the time, the abuse rate inside of foster care was higher than the abuse rate outside of foster care. So a child coming into foster care was more likely to be hurt. Um, and so uh, they came in and they said, hey, Oklahoma, you got to change. And yeah. In fact, basically,
0: it, this is not working. Yeah, it's not working. And it's such a big deal that we're suing the state. Yeah. And yeah.
1: so Oklahoma is still under a federal oversight. It's called the Pinnacle Plan. And we yep. have co-neutrals that oversee our foster care uh, system uh, to make sure that that we're caring for our children well. And we've been under that plan since 2013. And um I don't know when we're going to get out from under it. But mm-hmm. the, the, the push of it was that children were being hurt in care, mm-hmm. that there weren't enough foster homes, that caseworkers were overwhelmed and there was too much of a turnover, and that the children just weren't getting the care that they need. So their recommendation was that, they, that the state begin to partner with private agencies um, that are able to leverage their relationships in the community, um, for volunteer hours and volunteer dollars and put services um, around parents. Um, because when the, the average um, disruption, the average placement disruption in the, in the state of Oklahoma is over three. And um, so a kid that's placed in a foster home is kicked out of that foster home three times. In fact, um, the statistic is that only one out of four children actually stay in the first foster home that they're placed in. Mm. And so placement disruption is a, it's a, it's a, it's the system traumatizing a child again. It's another loss. It's an, it's another um, harm to to children. And so the Meadows of Hope, our focus is if we're not the first placement, we want to be the last placement. And so we believe um, that, the care that the child that's been taken out of their family deserves, um, is, uh, is worth the, the effort and the cost, uh, to, to build relationships and uh, put people around, around foster children. And so, um, it, I'm not saying that, that private agencies were not better people or smarter people. DHS workers are some of the most committed, um, and hardworking people that I know. Um, in fact, I've hired somebody out of DHS to come work with us, but we are able to, um, we believe we're able to give them the resources that they need to really do their job well, um, mm-hmm. to pay them well, to support them well, so that they can support their their, their foster parents well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It's funny when you're talking about the Pinnacle Plan. Um, so just a little bit of my story. I was in Owasso, and I was a children's minister there. And I, I've always had a heart for this idea of fostering or um, helping basically kids from hard places. And mm-hmm. um, so I started, and I'm just a single person living there, doing my job, and I have all this free time. And so I start researching where places I can help. And I found out that the church at Battle Creek was, um, had a partnership with, um, oh my goodness, It's the the shelter, the emergency shelter that was there, Laura Uh, Dester. Laura Dester. And um, so I called them and asked if I could go with one of their groups, and I went to the shelter, and that's where I met my son. Um, He was there with his – he had his two biological brothers, um, and – they got to be placed pretty quickly. He had more difficulties, Mm -hmm. um, lots of emotional difficulties. And he was kind of labeled hard to place. Mm -hmm. And um, so I didn't like that term. And God just kept putting us in the same place. And I was like, okay, am I supposed to be doing, you know. But at that time, it was, there were about 80 to 83 people just in that. It was Mm -hmm. supposed to be an emergency shelter where you're out in three to five days. And these kids would be there for months at a time. Yeah, we
1: had a child that was placed with uh, With us that had been in there about two and a half years? Yes, yes, yeah.
0: and it was chaos. And mm-hmm. so um, that pinnacle plan came, and that's one of the things that happened was this shelter had to be shut down. Mm-hmm. And I think it has been, right? Yeah, There's it's just shut a, down,
1: and, and they're working to repurpose it to more of a treatment facility. Yes,. Yeah.
0: yes. And so that was that was a that was a big push in that regard. Now, I do have to say when I got into foster care, I I counted the cost, I went through the training, I um, read all the books. I'm super passionate about it and I'm grounded in my faith, which I think has made a huge difference um, because I do have a network of people in the church that I feel like I can be vulnerable with and that can come along beside me, which I think is huge. I mean, talk about the turnaround. One Mm -hmm. of the big things from the Pinnacle Plan is the turnaround's not well. So you know, people are going through all this exhaustive training and then like you said, kids are moving placement. Foster parents are dropping after they have their first experience, their first placement, yeah. um, um, social workers are, are turning over. They're not sticking with it over time. Mm-hmm. And so what are um, some of the things that you guys have heard from foster parents um, that are some of their greatest needs?
1: Well I would l- love to to start. we people come to uh, the Meadows of hope um, because they want to make a change, right they They see the need um, in our community and they're moved by uh, something they've they've heard or they've seen, and they step into that space and let me tell you, it is a daunting space to step into. I mean just the FBI background check, six references, and the resource family assessment. We're going to ask you every question you wish nobody ever asked you. And then we're going to write it down. And we want to know
0: about your childhood. And if your parents or your siblings. Your parents' childhood. Yes, it
1: is. It is. It's intensive. But people go through that space and then we place a child in their home and we give them the training and the support. They place that child in their home. Um, And just most recently, we had a family come in and they said, hey, we want to be in this space, but we want five and under. We placed two little girls in their home, two-year-old and one-year-old, um, and they were brand new to custody, um, but that two-year-old uh, would not sleep, mm-hmm. and these are two working parents. They both uh, work during the day, and this little girl would not sleep. We had one of our caseworkers come over, stayed till two in the morning, just rocking this baby but this child had been in a domestic violence experience where um, she would call out for the couch she wanted to sleep on the couch so if the tv was on and she was in your arms she would sleep so the exhaustion that came to that family after about three or four days was yeah. just unimaginable yeah and what that family needed very simply friends come over hold that baby at night that's that's,
3: that was my number one thing too is it's basically like a respite care situation Mm because within these foster families life still goes on they still a lot of them have their own biological children Mm -hmm. you know you have this influx of new kids and they require so much more attention and it creates a whole other set of problems within that family and so sometimes the the foster family just needs and they can't just give the kids to anybody. I mean, they have to have like a lot of times they have to be qualified. You have, the people have to have some training. So within the church, you know, if there are people that are respite care certified, then mm-hmm. they can just they can have the kids go to these these families. And another piece of that, so the the kids come into foster care, and then the foster family feels guilty because they don't want to just pump the kids to somebody else, because then that that basically builds another sense of rejection for these these kids mm-hmm. that they've just absorbed. And mm-hmm. so it's a very complicated problem, but to have like a resource available within the foster care system, because foster families, they, they sometimes need to have focus time with their own biological family to kind of mm-hmm. work through some mm-hmm. problems that they're that they're kind of going through. So I think that's yeah. very important.
0: And just to relieve a pressure point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, with my son, he was with me for a year and a half before he stayed the night somewhere else. Right. And I, I was looking, so looking forward to him going on a church trip. <laughs> uh and yeah. junior high and cuz he literally he slept by my bed on the mm, floor for mm-hmm. the first year and a half that he was yeah. with me and he's 11 you know he's yeah. 11 to 12 and a half he's not like 2 mm-hmm. you know and yes um, but he just needed to be close all the time mm-hmm. and um whenever we were I took him to this to this retreat, and I'm I'm like gonna drop him off, and I know like that night I, all I'm gonna do is take a bath, and <laughs> I'm gonna do laundry, and I'm gonna watch a like a chick flick, yeah, and I'm gonna eat pizza, and like I was so excited, not set an alarm the next day, mm-hmm. not I wasn't think I was gonna leave the apartment. That's where you know where we we're living in. I go to take him, and at the last minute he realizes I'm not going. I don't know why he thought, <laughs> and he would not get on the bus. And uh-huh. I just remember in that moment feeling like. I don't want to lose my cool with you. I really feel for you because he was panicked. Mm -hmm. I mean, youth workers were trying to get him on the bus, and he was going, you're taking me away from her. And it was just like, and we went home, and that night I got into bed, and I, I I was feeling all these things. I was feeling frustration towards him, and then I felt bad that I felt frustration towards him, and I was feeling, like, resentment, and I was feeling tired, and I was feeling, like, just a selfish, angry because yes. I wanted. I was looking forward to this time that I was going to have, and I don't get to have it. And, um, and I just remember having to process that. And even now, to this day, I mean, as a foster parent, it, it's it's a little bit it's weighty yes. leaving your kids somewhere. Um, it's not the same thing. I know it's not the same thing as like ha- having a special needs child, but it feels the same in the sense that there are extra needs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: those foster children have gone through right trauma and a level of emotion that most of us may experience a handful of times in right. our life, they've experienced often daily. Yeah. And what we know now, thankfully, through science, uh, Dan Siegel, interpersonal uh, neurobiology, um, Karen Purvis, Texas Christian University, mm-hmm. um, understanding the role of physiology and the role of our uh, neuro framework that basically our vagus nerve yeah. is whenever that child is experiencing that trauma so whenever you were going to leave him yeah. right at the right. retreat where he could go have fun right his body is, is is experiencing I'm being taken away again I'm losing my family again right. it's this deep deep loss right. and he's experiencing that and when you look into his eyes you experience that and right. you don't even have a clue as to why
2: That brings up another good point about parenting kids with trauma. Uh Um, In my experience with foster parenting, and then also with my friends who have also fostered, um, parenting is different with foster, very different from how we grew up. Yes. Yes, Um, it is. And you really have to do a mind switch um, Uh to help really encourage and be compassionate and connected Uh to children. So you mentioned Karen Purvis earlier, Uh and the connected child, I think, is the as yes. a oh. child? She has a new one. Well, yes, you know, the connected, has, a, the connected, connected parents, yes. and it's yeah.
0: like I'm I'm oh. reading it. It's having you evaluate your own childhood, and exactly. I had a really good childhood, but it's explaining like triggers, and it's yes. like you always think about the triggers of kids, and it talks mm-hmm. about your own triggers as an adult. And so, what are the things that most like make you triggered? And mine is disrespect, mm-hmm. and it's like why is that? Well, I was raised to be respectful, and so I see it as a parent fail. I see it as Right. Um, yep. My pride is hurt. Mm-hmm. My, I need to put on this. I need you to be in line because if you being respectful and being in line is the best way to show that you are learning and growing, when that's not always what they need. And I'm exactly. in the middle of trying to figure that out. And, and so, that's such a
2: process for any is. foster parent. And it's like you, when you sign up to foster parent, yes, I can, I can babysit kids. I love kids. I love, I love little babies. And, uh-huh. and just, well, any any kid, but. I love children and I can babysit them like there's no tomorrow. All of our friends would ask for us to babysit, you know, no problem. But whenever you have kids in your home with trauma and it's a Uh day-to-day. It is. And it's um, just this, like, wait, this isn't, I can't do this the same way that I I knew. Uh So when we were first introduced to the Connected Child and TBRI and, um, Explain what that is. Trust based relational intervention, and it's like a whole brain switch. Yeah, it is. And on top of having a child in your care and going through everything else, that has been something that's just been on my heart too is that we need, like, one of the things we need to know is okay, how do we parent kids with trauma?
1: Mm-hmm. How do
2: we do that as a foster parent? And that's one of the big needs that I see in our foster care community is. We don't know what we're what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, let it's me say crazy. the and Meadows
1: of Hope. One of the great things about public-private partnerships um, is that again, that resources that come in. All of our caseworkers are TBRI practitioners. Oh, that's um, We've actually gone through all of the training each month that we provide foster care uh, training. We train a a uh, kind of module of TBRI, and um, we live, breathe. Um, Uh, TBRI. And and actually, uh, Karen Purvis and I uh, worked together on a project with the Meadows of Hope. Um, Just fantastic, horrible loss through the foster care space. But whenever you get into that space, foster parents that have gone through so much after two or three days of being in the space of just this really hard place often say, this was a mistake. I didn't. I I didn't realize I I must not have been listening to God. It must not have been God. It must have been the burrito, you know, and, um, you know, or they feel like this child needs more than what I can provide. And I'm, I potentially would do him harm or her harm. And so I'm going to step out of this space. Mm -hmm. That is the the greatest loss. Uh, when a foster parent steps out of that space, because what they need in that space is that they don't need me to drop a book off. They don't right. need to tell them about uh, polyvagal theory. or. No, they
0: need you to sit with them. They yeah, need, exactly.
1: They need a family. They need friends. And, and mm-hmm. um, one of the things I've said forever is I'd rather have 10 families supporting one foster parent mm-hmm. than 10 foster parents. Right. Yeah. Um, we need foster parents. Oh, absolutely. Randy, There's we need shortage. foster parents. But, but more than that, we need people around foster parents. Absolutely. And
0: That will enable the foster parents to stay, Yeah, mm-hmm. to deal yeah. with a difficult situation. Yes, right. yes you to know? endure.
3: Yes. I, just, I mean, think about it like this. So when these kids get taken away, their world is turned upside down. My, I recently have been through this with my CASA case. Mm-hmm. There's no current – within Payne County, there are no available beds for these kids. So potentially, they have to go to another county, which is another school. They lose mm-hmm. all their friends, everything. It just makes a bad and situation worse. And these kids are worse. older, Yeah, so these it's kids like are, yeah, even it just makes a bad d- situation it's worse. It's
0: an even greater dynamic there, right? Yes. Kids don't like to move when they're older, anyways. But whenever right. you don't even have a family, it's like mm-hmm. it's just more challenging.
3: Hey, I would even say, you know, that the training that you guys are, are talking about. I've got four biological kids, and we we went through the. We were going to try to adopt, and so we had to do some classes and stuff. Those classes were awesome for even if you're not yeah, planning to adopt. Kids. It was I realized what a failure as a parent I was for my <laughs> other kids <laughs> by taking those classes. So I think that uh, I think that it would be well time well spent for anybody who is a parent mm-hmm. to, to you know have
1: some of these classes. Oh, definitely. Well, and one of the big changes that came out of the Pinnacle Plan was uh, the ability to for families to get what's called informal care. And so um, it was a federal legislation that was prudent parenting. And so if you are a foster parent and you trust somebody, and you would trust them with your own child, then you can trust these people with your foster child up to seven days.
0: Yes. Now this is a misconception. So this is important for you to hear you technically don't have to have any training Mm-mm. to have to to be a respite person for people whenever that you i first know. St- yes people when that i you know. first started i couldn't leave my kid with any. that's why he was with me for a year and a half mm-hmm. um, but then it turned into if i was able to have some someone that i trusted within my church which i can think of several mm-hmm. in my church that i would trust with my children right. then i'm able to leave my child with them that is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Because, the, like you said, it's such an intensive process just to go through everything to become even a respite person. Well, prior
1: to that, you could not only could the only people that you could leave your, your child with um, overnight, over 24 hours with, was an was alternative caregiver. DHS limited the number of, of alternative right. caregivers that you could have, so you could only have two. You had to get an exception to get three. Right. And, um, you know, we had a foster family that was going to go on a cruise. Um, for a week, and um, they had they they had to get an alternative care- caregiver from their parent. Then uh, you know uh, the other parent had to be one, and then they needed somebody else to be an alternative caregiver. And the hoops that they had to jump through right now it's, it's not that way it's no. not that way
0: and the other thing that has that helps that is then the child is going to someone like if my children can stay with someone mm-hmm. um like last weekend when i had to go on a retreat with junior high students yeah. you know for my job they were able to stay with their auntie jen from the church who i trust um instead of going to a stranger's house because just because they're certified Right. You know, and that was a really helpful thing. Mm -hmm. She's able to, one, come and stay at our house, Mm -hmm. keeping them in their environment. They did things that were normal. I mean, they had a blast, you know, and it wasn't as strenuous. Um, I do, each of you, I want to say one way, if you could ask people to help in one way, what would be the way that you would say that you want them to help? And then I'm going to give a couple of of ways also at the end I'll
3: go first go for it we need we desperately need foster families within within Payne County I mean there's a there's a real need there Um, so that would be the the number one thing that I would say from my end what I see is there's just not there's not beds available uh, for for kids when they get taken out of the home Um, for all different ages from young kids to older kids I mean there's there's a real need there
2: um, one way to get involved that uh, we utilize, I mentioned earlier, is the Care Portal. And the Care Portal exists within the, within each church, and it's designed to support the church's ministry so that they can actually help support foster biological and adoptive families and children in care. Um, and a way to get involved with that is just to talk to your church. Um, my husband and I, we were not staff when we started. Um, we were volunteers, and that was it. And what we did was we brought the Care Portal to our church and... Just to explain a little bit about how it works, Um, a caseworker with a partnering agency will put in a need to the care portal on their caseload. So they have a family who really wants to take in a child, and it's a kinship family, and they can't take them in until they have a bed for them to sleep in. But they don't have the financial means to cover um, the bed. Then the need gets put on the care portal, and it'll actually go into uh, into the care portal to go to churches in that community so the local church to that need will get a need For that bed, and say, Hey, I've got one of, I've got an extra bed that this family can have. So somebody answers that request within that church and will actually go out to meet that request to deliver the bed um, and make that connection with the family. So it actually provides a means to connect and provide support for families. And one of the awesome things about it is that connection can be everlasting. So we've had it to where, um, I'll just tell you a personal story where we helped, um, a 19 year old who had aged out and it was a need that was put in by one of her workers with a partnering agency and they needed a bassinet. So we provided the bassinet noticed that she didn't really have a whole lot. So our church actually partnered with another church to throw her a baby shower, oh. um, That connection, actually, I get baby pictures now, and we've actually been able to help babysit. So, like, it's a big thing for the church to be involved in and be active in supporting families in their community. But the question is, how do we know about them as the church? How do we know? Unless we go, you know, knock on doors, how do we know about them? Well, the Care Portal gives us a platform to do that. And it gives a platform that the agencies know about where they can put it on the platform, and then they trust us. They trust us as the church to help meet it. Mm-hmm. And that's invaluable. That's a huge, huge deal whenever um, our agency partners can look at that and say, oh, we'll just put it to the church and they'll help. Yeah. You know, that's a I big hope deal. that you
0: guys catch that. Um, for the government to allow and reach out and acknowledge that there's less turnover and more provision within the family of God mm. is a huge witness mm. and a huge... Um, I believe, testament to who our God is Absolutely. and who He calls us to be in caring for one another as the church family mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. in general. So
2: and we've awesome. even branched out a little bit um, where we have agencies that are asking for mentorship for kids and families. And so people who um, are at risk for removal can now have a request put in for them. And maybe have that opportunity at connection there as well, so that maybe we can help out. Yeah. Maybe we can take the kid while you go on an interview, or a family in our church can that you've met before, and that is, you know, has had training, can you know help babysit for a little while for you while you go on an interview because you've lost your job, yeah. or you know the teen that is at risk that doesn't really have anybody, um, they can have somebody from a church who has also been trained to help mentor him once a week. And it's just, you kind of see things like that. Mostly right now we do physical needs, but physical needs can mean long lasting connections and just by the church doing what the church naturally does. So love it. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: All right, Mr. Brian.
1: Okay. I would say, um, we use the term foster care, but really I would, I would encourage you to look for people that are taking care of children that aren't their own. So even Randy said, you had some children live with you. They weren't in foster care. I, I would challenge each person to look in their circle and see and notice is somebody that they know caring for children that, that, that don't belong to them, that aren't their biological children. And when they see them, simple act of kindness, um, ask them over for dinner, uh, invite them into your home and feed them a meal. Um... And if you don't, if you look around and you don't have somebody in your in your circle, then I would say um, call the Lions Meadows of Hope, and um, we are doing uh, a meal drop off. And I'm gonna tell you, it may not seem a big deal, but we will give you a just nine by thirteen aluminum pan with the recipe on top of it, with the name of a foster family, and this this meal is for the Bacon family, and take that home, cook it, bring it, uh, by our office. And then we will take that to the bacon family and that family then will get an hour maybe of their day given to them because they don't have to worry about dinner and that hour that they have, will have an opportunity to serve those children. But then if you want to take it a step further, we can even have it to where you would drop off that meal at the bacon's family at their home. And, um, Potentially, relationships could be built out of that. But first, look around your own circle. Find the people in your own life and invite them into your home. Mm
0: -hmm. I think those are all really good things. I would say um, if you hear this podcast and you feel like something's stirring in you um, or you are passionate about this idea, then maybe God is calling you to act in one of these ways. I would encourage you to pray about that. Um, Don't be afraid to reach out to us. Um, Amanda Butler and Randy Butler um, are kind of leading the 146 ministry here at Sunnybrook. And we would love, we have the, the, um, the portal set up at Sunnybrook. So we'd love to get you on the list for that. We have our connections with Brian at Meadows of Hope. Um, we have Randy on the inside with um, Casa. And we would love to sit down and just get the word out and help figure out how we can mobilize you to help as well. Um, We love you guys a whole lot, and we are thankful that you guys uh, listened in, and we'll see you next time.